Hi, I'm Alicia Abendroth, and this is Tridge Agri Insiders, your agri food for thought podcast where we talk about anything and everything agri food supply chain. Brought to you by Tridge. We are excited to welcome Emily Negrin, Vice President of Corporate Affairs at Anari, onto today's episode of Agri Insider. Emily discusses how farmers must be supported in the 21st century in order to combat major global issues such as climate change and world hunger. Emily and her team at Inari, the trademark seed design company, are actively solving these issues by leveraging AI and multiplex gene editing technology with plants to meet food system needs of the future. Thanks for joining Agri Insider today. We're really happy to have you here with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Great. Um, so I thought, you know, we would start kind of at the very beginning. I would just love to hear and kind of go back in time to when you started your career, or I guess kind of maybe even before that, what got you into agriculture? What pulled you to this industry? Uh, probably the funniest thing about me is I tried to avoid it. Um, <laughs> my Both my parents grew up on farms. My dad has worked in agriculture his entire career and um you know the 18 year old version of emily was pretty sure that agriculture was the most boring thing you could ever do and uh god bless my dad he tried so hard to get me interested take your daughter to work days like he'd bring me in he'd introduce me to people in the lab and like try and show me all the cool things about agriculture that it wasn't just you know pigs on a farm um So I, uh, I was like, yeah, dad, that's, that's great. But I think I'm going to do something else. And eventually, you know, made the decision that I wanted to go into public relations and, uh, was very focused on that. And my first you know, job out of college was working for an agency that focused on the consumer side. And, you know, I, I loved it learned a lot and, you know, bounced around agencies here in the Minneapolis area. Um, one of the last ones I worked at was really focused on the food industry and started to get a really good grasp of especially the business to business side of food. Yeah. And, uh, but that was more of an advertising agency. And I learned rather quickly that I am not an advertising person, that my heart, uh, was more on the communication side. And, uh, then another agency had reached out to me and they had just started building up a practice for food and farm advocacy. And I had an interesting conversation with them because they had a really strong team of practitioners and all of them had amazing farm backgrounds. Okay. And, you know, we, we have the farming industry covered, but where we're struggling right now is our clients are coming to us and asking us to help bridge the gap between the agriculture industry and general consumers, because that's a gap that keeps getting wider. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our, our team of experts in agriculture are really good at talking to others in the industry about the industry, but there tends to be a little bit of a struggle when they try and talk to people outside of the industry. And the yeah. people who are experts at talking to everyone outside of the industry don't understand agriculture and they try and change things about agriculture to tell agriculture story and you know neither one is good and we need somebody who who understands both sides equally that can help help us start to bridge that gap and i thought that was a really interesting challenge and one of the things that also started to draw me in is i started seeing this shift in consumer attitude towards agriculture and it was just it really caught me off guard um because i felt like growing up you know no one ever said bad things about farmers or agriculture or agriculture companies and yeah. all of a sudden, there was all this negativity and it was really driven around you know really focused on gmos at the time and i just thought it was bizarre and felt like there was an opportunity to to improve that and got into it and basically never looked back. I realized that I loved working in agriculture. I actually got annoyed a few times because I got assigned yeah. to projects that weren't in agriculture. And I was like, well, I don't, 
I don't really want to sell yogurt anymore. <laughs> Do other things. Um, and yeah, so then I, from there, I uh, joined the corporate side of, of agriculture. And, and that's really where I've spent my time ever since. Yeah, no, that that's that's a beautiful story. It, it actually is really relatable um, to me as well, because it's funny how you when you grow up in agriculture, you you don't really realize how much it actually influences the way you see the world until you're out in the world and you see the other spectrum. Right. And then you start feeling and I, and I that, that nudge you talked about kind of like an internal impulse of like, why? why is there this injustice happening toward an industry that feeds the world, right? Like why, why are people actually putting it in this negative light and how do we change that? And it's, it's part of why we're in, I'm in this podcast today as well, right? Is because I want to start shedding that light on the yeah. industry. So it's super, um, it's super relatable uh, for me, your story. And, and by the way, I, I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So ah, yeah, beautiful. I, I know that side of the world very well. Um, it's nice and flat and beautiful. Yes, yes. It makes for wonderful bike rides. Yeah. Oh, right. Yes, it does. Um, so, okay. I guess my next question would be in terms of, I mean, you really talked about kind of like what drove your career and um, what kind of pushed you to be where, where you are today. Is that kind of the same drivers for you still at the moment? I mean, is it the same impulsive kind of, well, not impulsive, but the same impulses or has that kind of shifted for you? Are there new factors that make um, you get up in the morning, I guess? Yeah. And I think it, it's kind of evolved. And one thing, one thing I've always been very passionate about and even, you know, early on in my, my career and I think you know, I can think back to things in my childhood that probably influenced this as well. Um, but the the challenges around hunger to me mm -hmm. are very critical and motivating. Um, you know, it's, I think, such a misunderstood problem, especially here in the United States where, you know, the food is relatively affordable. Um, yeah. so, you know, and, 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 especially when you compare like what the average Americans, like what percentage the average America spends on food out of their income, it's much lower than in other parts of the world. Uh -huh. And we take that for granted. And so that translates to many of us as food is like food is cheap. Um, and that creates a lot of interesting dynamics because you get this commentary about how we should be making, you know, food in different ways that would ultimately make it much more expensive and the rationale is like well food is cheap so we can all afford to spend more money on food you can and that's great and there are options out there in the world that allow you to spend as much money as you want on food but not everybody can and it's not fair to adjust the system that doesn't provide nutritious and delicious options for everyone and that is something that I feel very passionate about is making sure that we can continue to have a food, an ample food supply that <laughs> meets the nutrition needs of everybody, but also is attainable for everybody. Um, I mean, here in the U.S., the level of hunger we have is, is unacceptable, especially for a country, you know, as, as prosperous as ours. And you know, and it, it only gets worse in other parts of the world. Um, and that's, so that's always been a big driver for me. Um, I think in recent, you know, as I said, when I first started getting into agriculture on a professional level, it was about, you know, bridging that gap and creating clarity and trying to bring trust back between, you know, consumers and, and mm -hmm. the industry. And I think there's, there's still definitely work that needs to be done there, but I think, I think there's been progress. I agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, and like I said, it's not perfect, but uh, you know, when I think to where it was, um, you know, when I first got into it, it felt like you were just screaming at a brick wall where now it feels much more um, there's much more conversations and people understand, I think, a little bit more of the nuanced of some of the issues. Now, the focus is shifting really, I think, to the 
the pressures around climate change and mm-hmm. you know, and that's something that Anari, my company, is is very passionate about, and it's critical. But you know, we talk about the the stool of sustainability having three key legs, and neither, like, none of them can can be um, left behind. I mean, you have to you have to take care of the planet. You have to yeah. make sure there's enough food, healthy food for everybody you have to take care of the population and you have to take care of the people who grow our food and, you know, helping everybody to understand the, the critical components of each of those legs of that stool. Um, and the, the equality between those legs is, is important. Something that continues to, I think really drive me and motivate me to, to do this work every day. Yeah, no, I, I I appreciate that. And I think it definitely is moving with the times, right? I think um, in the last four years, my perspective, especially on agriculture and supply chains and just the entire world, right, is that we've been faced with a lot of really immediate problems at once. I mean, COVID, let's not exactly. even start with COVID, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, sustainability and well, really climate change, right? I think yeah. agricultural players or farmers really, they're the closest to that um, in some ways. They experience it firsthand. Um, and then, like you said, this topic, this topic of hunger, I guess um, maybe this would be a good segue to kind of talk about what your or what Anari is doing in that space? I guess there's you know those three topics that we just that you just mentioned: hunger, sustainability. Um, you know what? What are you guys doing in that space to kind of combat that? Yeah. So uh, Anari is the seed design company, and we are using AI-powered predictive design and uh, multiplex gene editing to help uh, improve the plant itself. So Mm -hmm. our initial work is being focused on corn, soybeans, and wheat. And we have goals for each of those products. So um, in soybeans, we're working towards a 20% increase in yield. In corn, we're working towards a 10% increase in yield while also trying to drive down the use of water and nitrogen by 40%. And then in wheat, we're working towards a 15% yield increase. An important thing to understand on the yield increase, especially as it relates to sustainability, is you know, if we can make these drastic improvements of the, the crop's ability to produce more grain on less land using less inputs, right? You know, it's gonna drive larger sustainability benefits. Um, And this all, you know, so that's kind of the component of taking care of the land. Now the population that allows us to ensure that we can continue to grow enough food. Um, You know, I think there's a misconception um, at times about how much food security we have. Uh, There was actually projections, I think they came out earlier this year and yields are starting to plateau. Our population isn't. <laughs> right. Um, so how do we how do we manage towards that? And if that's something that if we don't start to figure out, you know, could become a very scary problem. And and to me, it's not only about you know the the physical act of of providing people with nutrition, but I think a lot of people take for granted the like global security issues that come into play when yeah. there's enough food. I mean, it's it's really easy to say like spend more money on food or do this or this that, but like I I mean, I hope everyone takes a step back and remembers like the fundamentals. Was, well, yeah, and there was a point of time, you know, in COVID where people were starting to get a little panicky about like as, and when I go to the grocery stores, food going to be on the shelves. And especially here in the United States, I think it was the first time for a lot of people to grow go into a grocery store and see some empty shelves. I mean, we could still get food, but there there was the sense of scarcity. Right. It, you know, and it take a step back and think like, especially, you know, I'm I'm a parent of, of two young boys. Like, what would you do to make sure that they didn't 
go hungry. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not like, oh, mom, I want another snack. I mean, I'm talking about actual hunger. I mean, most of us would start making probably some bad decisions to ensure that our kids got food if it came down to it. And that's that's where you think about if that happening on a global scale, that's a security issue. Right. And, you know, countries go to war over food for a reason. Um, so, you know, I think that that's a problem that could quickly snowball if we're not taking care of our food supply yeah. and, and, and all that. And then, you know, on the that third prong that I talked about was, you know, making sure that we're taking care of the people who grow our food, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that the, the pricing structure and the ROI structure is benefiting, you know, all of it, everyone that's involved. So we don't sell anything directly to farmers. We work with seed companies. So we'll ultimately sell what's called parent seed to seed companies. They'll bulk it up and, you know, manage it under their own um, brands and umbrellas. Um, But, you know, making sure that, you know, the company, our customers that we work can be prosperous because these are a lot of like smaller independent companies and that, you know, they can sell these products at a price point for their farmers that it makes sense for them and that, you know, they're getting a return on their investment as well. So that, you know, profit sharing is, you know, providing benefits throughout the the chain. Right. So kind of digging deeper on the farmer perspective and, and I guess the farmers who will be utilizing it. So I guess for them, major advantages would be the efficiency component, right? They would get more yields. They would get more. What other kind of, I guess, kind of looking at the farmer's perspective, what other problems is is Inari solving at that level? Um, you know, it, it that's one area that I'm really excited for us to be able to start digging more deeply in. So we don't have anything um, commercially available today. Um, it will be soon. Um, but, you know, that's one thing that we're starting to think more carefully about. How do we collect information and data? Because you know, you can make some very educated guesses and we have a, a modeling system in place that helps us kind of understand all the dynamics of the system and um, what we think implications will be of introducing different products. Um, but, you know, if you start thinking of if you can increase, you know, we'll take our soybean, for example, you know, if you can get to a 20% yield increase and you can go 20% more mm-hmm. on the same amount of land, you know, now we're talking about less runs of a tractor, you know, through the field because you're doing more with less, you know, less resources, but does it also empower other decisions? Maybe, you know, it's saying, okay, if I can get this much more yield, I'm going to start allocating my land in different ways and making different choices on how I want to use my land. Or, you know, maybe I'm I'm growing this crop here, but I can now use this these acres for a different crop. Um, so I think it's it's important to be able to empower them with a toolbox that gives them choices to make the decisions that is best for their operations, for their land, and, you know, for their family and community. And, and I think pulling the scope out again a bit, right, so we're kind of at that farm level, if you look at it also as a big picture, I'm guessing, and this is just, as, as I was listening to you speaking, I'm guessing that, you know, one thing, one other benefit would be we could kind of prevent or maybe even restore certain monocultural land use um, in the sense that, let's say, you know, to feed the growing population, we might need to, I don't know, deforest X more amount of land to produce X more acres of corn to feed X more people, right? Maybe a NARI can kind of help reverse or even or maybe not reverse, but halt some of that evolution. That's definitely, you know, a, a hope of ours that, you know, we can, we can make sure that we're able to continue to grow the food that we need without putting extra land into production. Yes. Um, and, you know, and maybe even getting to a point where, you know, you can think about, you know, there are, I mean, so before I worked at Inari, I worked for a company today called uh, Earth Daily Agro that specializes in satellite imagery mm-hmm. um, for agriculture. And, you know, it's really interesting to look at some of, of their 
their data and how crops grow on land. Like there are chunks of land where things just never really grow well. <laughs> right. But it's it, but it's been in the family for years. So they keep exactly working, right. And, yeah, and the yeah. idea of like taking that acreage out, it's like, well, you know, maybe maybe I'm not getting the same level of produ productivity out of that land, but like it's better than nothing. It's still it's still providing enough of a profit that you know the the risks uh, the benefits outweigh the risk so if we can get to a point where it's like okay so so now you don't necessarily need need that and you can you know the land that's not best utilized for growing certain crops like how how can you better utilize that i'm not going to pretend to be an expert in in land utilization right. there are people right. who are but i think you know i am a a strong uh, advocate of empowering the farmers to make good decisions. And one of the the things, especially like when you start getting into carbon credits that, you know, I have very mixed feelings about because you get people who who want to get so defensive of farmers today. And I, and, and this like, there's this commentary of like, there, you know, farmers are today, you know, better at caring for the land than anybody and that is true to a point farmers care very much about their land they will tell you that the most valuable asset they have is their land and they want to make sure that that land can be passed down for generations and its quality the challenge is we haven't equipped them with the best tools always to do that and yes you know so i think there's been you know, I like to make the analogy as a parent of, you know, there was a time where everyone put their children in a car and didn't have them put a seatbelt on because, you know, the knowledge about the risks and all that wasn't there. And, you know, today, no parent would think about putting their kid in a car without putting them in a seatbelt or, you know, the right age, having them in the proper seating because we now know we have the information so that we can make better decisions so i think acknowledging that farmers have made the best possible decisions they can for the land with the information and the the tools that they have mm -hmm. as we improve the information that they have as we improve the tools that they have they can improve how they care for the land and i i strongly believe they will but the I don't think it's beneficial to say everything is perfect and let's reward them for what they're doing today. Like that's not going to get us to where we need to be in, you know, five, 10, 20, 30 years, but they're also not bad actors. They're not the problem, right? The problem is the information and the tools. So as, as we continue to improve the information and tools and we empower them to make decisions, because I think another problem we have is, this like one size fits all mentality of, mm -hmm. well, this worked really well here. So everyone should just do it that way. Like the, what grows in Minnesota is very different from what grows in Georgia, from what right. grows in Germany, from what grows in Africa. And even a crop that grows in all those places, the variety that grows and the needs of that variety. And, you know, there's so much complexity to all that, that you can't just say, well, everyone should just do it this way because that's best like no we got to put some faith and trust in the farmers they care very deeply about the land they are trying to to make the best possible decisions but it's important that we empower them with better information so they can make the best decisions that we empower them with better tools with you know better innovation with better technology so that they can continue to make the improvements that ultimately they want to make so I really, I like that word empowerment. And I think for me, it kind of drives home this concept for me as well. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, farmers get so many demands, right? They, I don't know, they need to make sure the crop is even growing properly. They need to do accounting, bookkeeping, HR, you know, they, they're doing compliance. And, you know, then someone comes and says, well, hey, you're doing all that, but we also need you to do this because you also are responsible for the planet, right? <laughs> like, yeah. like it's a ton of pressure if you think about it for a farmer every day and they oh, have yeah. to make it profitable. 
I guess my question is, what's your opinion on kind of um, empowerment from the supply chain? So I know Anari, and this might be a bit out of your wheelhouse um, in the sense that Anari is very focused on um, kind of optimizing the input side of things, but you know, there is that other side, the sales side of it, right? The consumer end of it, the um, purchasing, or I guess sales price of goods, right? And I know yeah. this goes a bit into economics, but you've been in this industry so long, um, you know, you've taken on a PR role and then several different roles. Maybe you have some thoughts around some things that could change on that consumer supply chain level as well. Yeah, one of the things that like, uh, puts me over the edge is listening to consumer food brands talk about these lofty sustainability goals with yeah. no idea how they get achieved. Um, and I was actually at uh, an event last year and I was sitting next to a young farmer from uh somewhere out east and we were listening and I won't call the company out but there was a representative from a very 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 well-known large consumer brand company up on stage and they were talking about you know the importance of setting audacious goals and this woman's like yeah when we set our audacious goals for sustainability like we had no idea how we were going to achieve them but that wasn't important it was important to have these big bold audacious <laughs> goals and the farmer uh, sitting next to me turned to me and he looks at me and goes, on my back. And that's it. Yeah. Like, that gives you, me goodbumps. Yeah. Like, and I'm like, you know, and we had this whole conversation about it then. And it is ridiculous to, for these large, you know, retail companies and manufacturer companies to set these goals without any understanding of the implications that plays down the, the food chain. And they have no desire to spend more money on sourcing. They're looking to make cuts. Their right. expectation is, Mr. Farmer, I need you to implement all of these changes. I need you to reduce your carbon footprint so that I can go to my consumers and tell them that I'm doing a better job. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to pay you anything for that. And yeah. like, all oh, that just drives me insane because to your point, the farmer's already incurring so much. And there are some very large farmers who do very, very well right. and are very profitable, but the capital investment that some of these things require even for wealthy farmers are not don't make economic sense for them in the moment it's a huge investment a lot of times up front and you hope it pays off over the long run you know you hope this company continues to you know purchase from you or you know maybe they set a, a enticing price to get you started but is that going to stay and what are your other costs going to be along the way so there's all this certainty and, you know, the manufacturers have different levers that they get to pull to manage their uncertainty. Farmer's business partner is mother nature and she's not very <laughs> like that, <laughs> you know, so they're, they have, they don't have the same type of levers that they can pull. They can't be like, you know, Hey, we just need it to rain a little bit more or a little bit less this year so you know if you could just manage that mr weatherman that'd be great um so i think that's that's one thing that i continue to be concerned about and you know the the retailers and the manufacturers i think hide under this blanket like consumer demand well the consumers right. demand it. the consumers demand it and <laughs> yes everybody wants you know, to purchase food that isn't having a negative impact on the planet. Like no one's, if you ask anybody that question, like, would you rather purchase food that has a really giant negative impact on the globe? Or would you rather purchase food that has a positive impact? Yes. Everybody wants to have a positive impact, but yeah. it's not 
it's not that simple. And, you know, at the end of the day, it, you know, there's research out there that shows what, you know, what people say is important to them and how they actually make their purchasing decisions aren't always the same. You know, we all go to the dentist and tell our dentist that we floss regularly because we want to be the person that flosses regularly. But the second our dentist looks at her teeth, you know, she quickly knows, yeah, Emily's not maybe flossing as often as she's claiming that she is flossing. Our ideal state and how we operate are different, you know, and, and that's true for everybody. And, you know, a lot of times when you watch consumer behavior in the grocery store, people are making decisions on, you know, what looks good and what fits in their budget, you know, and that's the reality of it. And, you know, so it's important to keep food affordable and it's important to make improvements, but the system has to work cooperatively to make improvements and they can't just keep shoving the cost for improvements down the food chain until mm -hmm. it hits the market. That is, that is unfair. Um, and you see that a lot in European retail as well. I mean, not uh, sustainability is now in the works, right? They're coming up with some um, certification processes to um, certify farmers for being more sustainable. And, you know, they had this already with social welfare in Europe. So a lot of retailers here demand, you know, you have um, because they work, we import a lot here, right? We don't have as yep. much domestic consumption as in, in the U.S., um, so, you know, they want to see certification that ensures that the growers are, you know, X, Y, Z, doing X, Y, Z right for their workers. And all of this is so good in, in theory, right? But I think you raised a really good point is that corporate responsibility element of, okay, you know, yes, we need to keep creating processes to define that companies are being good land stewards and that they're, you know, treating their workers well and all these things. But like you said, the average farmer intrinsically wants to do all those things because they know that that they need to do that to make their business last generations right so i think the question really becomes much more about integrating that system and saying okay corporate you know what what can the corporations do to help these farmers um i guess become become successful in 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 what the consumer demand, you know, and I put yes. quotations around it because you're right. You raised that. That was eye opening for me. What we consider consumer demand, it's kind of like what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Because we've just, yeah, it's become part of the culture almost now to to want these things. And um, yeah, it, it it's a really interesting point. Um, I think I'd like to back up really quickly and and kind of go back to maybe a little bit more about your career. Um, I mean, Anari, you've been here. How long have you been working at Anari? As uh, it will be three years in November. So okay, just coming up on three years. Okay, cool. So you you had mentioned you um, studied. What you said you studied like corp like communications and okay. So this and you said you kind of did it to rebel almost against the <laughs> the agricultural upbringing. I mean, so, and you said then it kind of merged back together. I guess I kind of want to know more about that. Like, what was some of the first, um, and you kind of touched on it, but some anecdotes out of these early experiences, maybe as you were being pulled back into agriculture and kind of like, maybe you have a story you can share or something from that time that I know it's reaching back a bit, but. Um, well, no, and I, you know, it's funny because, you know, there's, there's little things along the way, probably one of the first things that you know made me pause um was well actually i'll go back even before i was in college um you know there were i went with my dad to work one day and there were protesters uh and it was a saturday he had brought something in the office and uh there was protesters at the office at the employee entrance on a saturday and i remember as a young kid being like well that's silly like who's going to see you? Like no one's coming. Like there's not a lot of people coming in on a Saturday. Who are you protesting for? Um, but I asked my dad what they were upset about, and they, you know, it, it was very much a, an anti-science protest. And I, I was like, well, why? Like why? Someone just needs to explain it to them so they understand. And my dad was. I'm sure it's kind of laughing at my ignorance and was like, yeah, I don't think they really want to understand. And then in college, 
I distinctly remember sitting at my favorite coffee shop with my my good friend Brianna and we were sitting there and I looked across the street and we were right next to the uh, um, medical arts building. So I went to the University of Minnesota and there's ultimately three pieces of the campus. Um, so I was on the over by the, the medical building at the coffee shop and there was often people protesting against animal testing at the medical facility. So you kind of got used to seeing demonstrations. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't think twice about it, but then I happened to look up and read the signs and there was a group of people and one of the signs literally read seeds have rights to. And I realized that they were protesting against GMOs and apparently they were advocating for the rights of seeds. And I was really confused and really wanted to go over and ask them some questions and also direct them to where the School of Agriculture was because nobody in the medical arts building was doing anything with seeds. Um, but my friend wouldn't let me. She's like, this isn't going to end well. You need to just stay here and drink your coffee. Um, but then, like I said, like, there was all these, and we really started on, on you know, a lot of misunderstanding, I think, around GMOs and and everything that happened with that. And I was really just, I think like many people in the industry kind of confused of like all of a sudden everybody has an opinion about how, you know, farmers should do their work. And mm -hmm. for the longest time, no one was paying attention no one cared but you know you had all these groups that were against the use of gmo seeds and it just exploded from there um and i i realized that one of the things i really enjoy is helping people understand complex complex industries or things um, I, I like helping make information attainable because I think that's really important because it's really easy for, um, for people to make things seem like it's just too complicated and it's too hard. And that is what creates a lot of distrust. And you see this done all the time in politics. It's like, oh, you know our ants like what they're talking about is just too complicated it's too hard and let's just keep it simple by saying no <laughs> yeah it's That's, easier just to yeah, yeah. To protest it. yeah. well and, and i mean and when you look at how a lot of times you know when activist groups are successful it's not because they've necessarily convinced people that they're right they've just created enough confusion and distrust in the other side. They don't have to get you to agree with them. They just have to get you to not support what they're fighting against. And that's actually a lot easier to do than the opposite of getting someone to say like, no, I'm going to stand up and support you. Um, and, you know, one of the first big projects that I worked on for agriculture was with actually the uh, pork producers. And uh, they had this great research done that talked about, you know, consumer opinions, and it was focused on Minnesota. And I, you know, went through all of the research to really try and understand, like, what's, what are the dynamics, what's going on? And, you know, in Minnesota, we have so much agricultural industry and there's so many people in Minnesota who have who like you know like me didn't grow up on a farm but have relatives that are you know who did or still are farming um so there's you know maybe just one or two degrees of separation from agriculture so the understanding for it you know the the research so that the understanding was was better than maybe what is taking place on a national level but there was all these indications that like it's ripe for you know activist groups to come in and start changing the tide so you know it was kind of felt like we were at this pivotal point and particularly for the the pork producers you know there's this 
there was this not necessarily distrust, but just a kind of an underlining question that I was seeing trending of kind of, you know, you don't, you just don't see farming like you used to. Like you used to see the animals more. And mm. you know, and now I don't see them. And you know, and I don't know why I don't see them. And it does make me question, is something being like, are they hiding something? Are they not right? You know, and and there were activist groups that were coming in being like, yeah, they're hiding it because they're doing all these horrible things. Well, no, that's not true at all. Like, <laughs> they're protecting the animals. Like, you know, I'm sure everybody's, the joke is, you know, Minnesota is this horribly cold place. And I mean, that's true for a few weeks, but, you know, we have long winters and there are, you know, periods of time where it gets really cold. It's not safe for animals to be outside in that. And at the same time, like we also get really hot streaks in the summer. That's also not healthy for animals. And, you know, when they're exposed to all the elements, especially pigs, you know, they roll around in mud, not because they think it's fun. That's how they keep their bodies cool. Well, there's mm -hmm. lots of germs in that mud. So if you can keep their body temperature regulated so they don't need the mud, you can also keep them healthier. And if you keep them healthier, then they don't need all the extra medicines that people are afraid of. So, you know, it's this, it's just the idea of providing information. So we created this campaign where we would bring uh, influencers out to the farms. Ah, and I love that. It was, it was fabulous. So we, we'd create this great event where we would, we were working with a bunch of local chefs. So we would do a, a cooking class to start. So we would teach them a fun pork based recipe and they would get a fun lunch and then we would literally put them in a van and take them out to a local farm and we would let them see everything and it was you know ask any questions you have you know you're going to meet the people who work here you can see all this firsthand and you know I had a number of I mean we we focused on on moms um and I had a number of people who were like I was afraid of like I love bacon I was afraid if I did this I was going to leave and be like I can't ever eat bacon again like I'm more proud now to serve bacon to my family than I ever was because I understand this in a new way. Um, and then we also did a campaign where we called Ask a Farmer, Feed a, uh, Feed a Family. So we'd go to farmer's markets. I think they still might be doing this today. Um, we'd go to farmer markets and we'd bring our farmers because like, yeah, you can bring, you know, a couple of people out to the farm, but you can't bring everybody. But we can bring a farmer to a farmer's market and hit a much broader audience. <laughs> yeah, true. So we will have you know, our farmers come and the idea was if you would take a moment while you were at the farmer's market and ask any question you wanted, uh, we recorded the question and for every question we would donate a pound of ground pork to uh, Second Harvest Heartland. So it could go to, to feeding families. And it was really interesting the questions that we got because when someone's not filling out a survey and responding to targeted questions, like when they're just out and they're thinking about food they're at the farmer's market they're buying vegetables and all this stuff like what what is top of mind for you people weren't asking like detailed hard-hitting questions about their sustainability practices or you know they weren't really even asking animal husbandry questions and this is was at a time when there was a lot of media out about you know um, gestation crates on farms so it wasn't that you know it wasn't you know, it was weird that it would have been top of mind. Like there was, there was stuff out in popular media that could have very easily made those top of mind questions. Most of the questions are like, you know, why do pigs roll in mud? <laughs> like, well, and that was like a great thing because you could explain why they do. And then you got to explain why, you know, farmers today tend to keep them inside, especially in Minnesota and Iowa, where a lot of the pigs are. You know, because it's it's the the environment isn't always that friendly. Um, you know, and there's a wonderful farmer, this woman, and I'm blanking on her name, um, but I think she was something like sixth generation of her family uh, on the farm. And you know, she talked about like she remembered when she was young, her dad and uncles out chasing pigs in an ice storm and like trying to get them inside fast enough to protect them. And, you know, it wasn't uncommon for someone to like, you know, sprain an ankle or, you know, end up in an arm sling because they fell really hard 
chasing pigs on the ice. Like it wasn't, you know, pigs would get hurt. Like it wasn't good for anybody. She's like, now they're just, we can take really good care of them inside. Um, and, you know, hearing those stories, people were like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But it, it takes time to tell those stories. It, it, it takes, yeah. you know, you have to engage in those conversations. And, you know, when you, you can, it works, but it's not, it's not possible to do that for everybody. Um, but, you know, it was, it was fun to see that campaign and just the, the realization of, you know, needing to find ways to make connections and making the information attainable and understandable for people. And, you know, once you do that, you know, not everybody's going to be like, oh, yay, this is great, wonderful, and perfect. You're still going to have people who, you know, there's always going to be people who, who you know, don't want to eat meat. There's going to be people who still have other views about how it should be done. And, you know, and quite frankly, that's one of the great things is that we, you know, in, we have different systems to meet different demands. Where I have problems is when we get to that, back to that whole thing of, of saying, this is what I believe works best so everyone should do it this way you know having those options you know if if you want to eat you know grass-fed cattle like great you have that option but i don't think it should be you should get to say everyone has to eat grass-fed cattle you know if you want to eat grain-fed cattle you know yay good for you eat grain-fed but you don't get to tell everybody else that they have to eat you know grass-fed or you know if you choose not to eat animals you shouldn't get to pass laws that say no one gets to eat animals. Um, right. So that's that's where I think it gets a little bit interesting at times. <laughs> it, it, totally. And I think those different opinions are are, are extremely important and um, should be protected. I, I, I mean, it's really beautiful what you're doing because you took this kind of communications degree, which you could have applied anywhere, right? You could have said, oh, I'm going to go to, I don't know, engineering or something and break down complex processes and, you know, bring them to consumers. But you chose to do it in agriculture, you know, representing these salt of the earth people sometimes who don't, who are quite introverted, right? They're not always uh, out there speaking their opinions or, or um, you know, making kind of an effort to, to educate, right? They almost like their privacy. And I think it's it's just really amazing to see how you've kind of taken this and, and made it relatable, digestible. Um, we need those people, really, we do. Um, kind of building that bridge between the farm and 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 even this GMO space and and the average Joe, right? Or the average person. Um, so I guess my my kind of second to last question would be, I mean, GMO is a big buzzword, right? It's almost like uh, oh my gosh, don't mention it word, right? For a lot of people. That seems like a huge challenge. I mean, you brought people to the farm, right? You made it relatable. That's kind of very tangible, but you know, at Anari, you're having to do this for the topic of GMO. Can you tell, share some secrets, I guess, on how, how does one do that? Because I wouldn't know how to even yeah. start combating it. So, uh, you know, first, especially with Anari, my first challenge is separating the work that we're doing from what consumers have come to coin as GMOs. So, you know, what, we have basically show, socially accepted as the tag on GMO or food that includes what is technically has what's called a transgenic trait. So we've taken uh, DNA that, you know, isn't found naturally in that species mm -hmm. and put it in because it provides some sort of, of benefit. Um, and there's, you know, it's, provided benefits in what I call uh, categorized broadly as protecting the yield. It's, it's enabled farmers to get the maximum potential out of that crop in a more attainable way. Um, gene editing is focused on working with the plants natural DNA. So working with DNA that's, that is naturally found within that species and making changes to the DNA mm -hmm. to enhance the plant's actual potential. So, you know, there's still components in places, you know, especially when we think about corn and soybean in the United States where, you know, GM 
what we call GM traits. So those, those transgenic genes are still going to add value because that protecting side, um, there's not, there's not a lot of pathways that we're finding today within the plant's DNA that provide that same level of protection. So again, it's not like when we think about the farmer's job, we don't want to cut them off at the knees and say like, okay, we're going to take away this valuable tool from you and make it harder for you now to protect the yield, but we're going to prove the yield because they might not end up ahead. So, you know, trying to balance all that, but our work is really focused on how do we make improvements? You know, we, we talk about unlocking the plant's full potential. How do we make improvements within the plant itself? And when we look at things like improving yield or water use efficiency or nitrogen use efficiency, there's not like a magic gene. Like there's not a yield gene in the plant. There's not a water use gene. These are systems within the plant that, you know, we have to understand how, how they work together. And if you make an adjustment here, how does that impact this part of the plant and what does that mean? Um, so that's where we're really using that AI powered predictive design. So that allows us to make much smarter decisions about what we're going to do. So, yep. And that's a system that we continue to work on and improve, but ultimately what, what we're working towards is, is having all the pathways within the plant understood so that we can say, okay, to drive this type of change, here's, here's the edits that we likely need to make. And maybe we get it down to 13 edits that, that come out that are suggested that could drive the, the performance that we're looking for. So then we'll do some initial testing um, in our labs just to kind of see what, what actually does happen when you start messing with these genes. And maybe we get it narrowed down to like five. And that's so the data that we get from that initial research goes back into that AI um, funnel and helps us make smarter decisions next time. But then we continue to move it along the process and say, okay, so now we have it narrowed down and we think these five edits could be the most powerful. So we're going to actually start putting those in plants and growing the plants to see what happens when when these these edits are in place and the the plant grows. So again, it's just kind of continuing to capture that data and narrowing it down and saying, okay, here's where we're seeing the best prospects in terms of of what we're hoping to achieve, and you know you move that through a greenhouse and eventually you do field trials and all that. Um, but what we're finding and why we talk about multiplex editing is it's going to have to be a lot of times more than one edit that you make. And you might be making different types of edits. So there's kind of the basic of CRISPR where you turn a gene off. Um, but, you know, we also do what's called promoter fine tuning. So uh, think about a volume dial. So we're changing how a gene might express itself. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is, is, a, is the corn plant really tall or is it really short? Um, or is it someplace in between, you know, those thinking about those types of characteristics within the plant that we can control. And then there's more complex ways of, of doing edits that, you know, it's taking a whole, um, uh, a whole string of, of code and, and replacing it. So we have all these different levers that can be pulled, but it's all working within, you know, the natural DNA and the plant um, or compatible species. So it's a little bit you know, it's different because the resulting, you know, grain from that is virtually indistinguishable from that of something that would have been conventionally bred. And it's also exciting because we're able to work with a lot more varieties. Uh, when you work with transgenic traits, it's really complex and it, you know, you basically get success within one variety and then you, you use that, um, you know, that solution across the board, where in gene editing, you know, and working with the plant's DNA, you find a, a, a successful edit and you can make it in multiple varieties. So now we can start, you know, making sure, as I talked about before, you know, even, you know, even if you look from Minnesota to Texas, you know, we're growing corn, but the varieties of corn that grow well in those areas are very different. So, yeah. you know, we get the yield benefit in all these different varieties. Um, and that helps support a more productive ecosystem, even within the crop itself, because you have more variety. And as you know, climate change continues to impact growers, you have more options for what 
what varieties might work best for your land. Um, so we're we're doing a lot of work. I know this is getting a, a kind of no, no. not about way of your question. So you know, one of my first challenges is separating, you know, helping people understand the different types of technology that are available today. And to me, it's important not to be uh, discriminatory against any of them because they all, you know, it's about, you know, finding the right solution for the right problem. Um, and there's different technologies that work better. And, you know, we hope to get to a place of gene editing that, you know, in an ideal world, like we'll be able to solve any problem. Um, but that's going to take some time. The wheat genome is five times more complicated than the human genome. You know, we're just scratching the surface in terms of being able to identify what everything does within the plant. Um, and that work, you know, is continuing. But, uh, you know, so we might unlock things in the future. But, you know, it, those solutions aren't all available to us today. And it's going to take more time and more research to get to things like, you know, um, pest control, like better pest control solutions that, you know, maybe enable us to be less dependent on certain types of chemicals. Um, is it a possibility? I, I certainly hope so. But I can't tell people like, oh, yeah, we're going to get that done in the next couple of years. All right. Um, there is some really promising research out there on, you know, um, fungus. I think someone's doing it like with potatoes, which it tends to be a really big problem. Um, and, you know, one of the exciting things about the Inari platform is we're building it in a way that we can really work for work on any crop in any geography. So, you know, we're focused right now on corn and soybeans. And the reason for that is within our sustainability, you know, mission, we think about how to make the greatest impact in the shortest period of time. And here in the United States, corn and soybean are the dominant crops. They cover the greatest number of acreage. And if we want to start making noticeable improvements in the sustainability of agriculture, we need to address the crops that are taking up the most amount of land. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, you know, we're starting there. And we were really excited at the beginning of last year to sign a partnership with Integrain out of Australia to start working on wheat, because that's another critical crop globally. Um, and it's also really exciting because that's more of a, a direct-to-consumer crop where most of the corn and soybean is used really for feed for animals. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a continuous process. You know, I think here in the United States, in general, there's been a little bit more of a, uh, acceptance of the transgenic traits, the GMOs, mm -hmm. um, and people, I think, kind of understand more about it. Um, it's been around for over 20 years. There's no, there's no health incident ever <laughs> recorded related to <laughs> GM food. Um, so, you know, I think people understand, like, it is, it is safe technology. Um, so it's not as big as a problem. I would say, it's not as big as a challenge in the United States. Um, and we don't see as many questions around, you know, the use of technology like gene editing because of that. Um, mm -hmm. Europe is a very different game right now. Um, and there's, you know, I, I am cautiously optimistic. Uh, the commission actually just the beginning of July submitted its proposal to the European Parliament talking about its suggestion for how they deal with what they classify as NGTs, new genomic techniques, which would include gene editing. So, you know, and they did a study a few years ago and came out and said, listen, if Europe is serious about meeting its, its sustainability initiatives and the new green deal, you have to start empowering farmers with better tools. Technology, yeah. They need technology in order to meet this demand and things like gene editing right have, you know have the the potential to do that I, so that I, was so, sorry I don't, I don't want to cut you off but i keep thinking about a case study out of the the wine world because they developed a variety here that um is uh fungus resistant 
Um, but the grapes don't taste very good. And I think, you know, it's so easy for the European Union to keep saying, oh, well, stop spraying all these fungicides, just stop, stop, stop. But I mean, if they switch to this, this variety does exist, but if they switch the wine, won't, we won't have, you know, the Cabernet Sauvignon or whatever that we love. They'll have some other strain, right? Yeah. And I think this would be maybe a great place to kind of apply that, right? You could take maybe the 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 fungus resistant elements of the one plant and combine it with the Cabernet Sauvignon that we love of the other, and the whole thing would be solved. I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, that's over. Exactly. And to me, that's the really exciting thing is there's so much opportunity, and um, you know. I think there's also a growing level of understanding and of acceptance, especially when you think about all the advancements that's taken place in the medical world using CRISPR technology. I mean, there's there's literally hundreds of people right now who have been cured of sickle cell anemia because of CRISPR. Um, we all have CRISPR right now in our stomach. It's a naturally occurring thing. Um, and, you know, we've just through, you know, advancements in science, we've figured out how to, you know, for lack of better words, program it um, to, you know, do something specific instead of just, you know, doing random things in our body um, and have it, you know, make positive changes, um, you know, within people to help address, you know, diseases and illness, which is incredible. Uh, but as uh, Catherine Fulet, our chief scientific officer says, you know, it, we won't need to worry about curing disease if everyone dies of hunger. hunger. So, <laughs> um, you know, just as critical is being able to, to meet the needs of a growing population and take care of our planet. And I, you know, and that is to me, what's really exciting is, you know, this gene editing technology has that potential and, you know, being able to, see firsthand what the scientists are working on and the possibilities that are are in place you know that's what keeps me going you know i i've joked with people you know i probably am working harder at anari than i have in a long time but i'm also enjoying my work in ways that you know i haven't always um it's a really to me it's it's an exciting challenge, but it's such an important challenge. And, you know, I believe that not if, but when we're successful, we're setting up, you know, agriculture and, you know, the population to be in a better place. You know, Ponzi Trivisvet, our CEO, talks a lot about, you know, she looks at her her daughter who is seven years old now and she thinks about like her daughter's grandchildren and what are we leaving for them and you know and that really motivates her and I think that's important because it's not just about our children it's our children's children um and how can we what can we do today that gets us to a better place for for them in their future and I think we're in a really pinnacle point in time where we have to make some pretty quick decisions so that we can provide a good world for our children's children's children even, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, and that's one of the pushbacks sometimes we hear, I think, especially, you know, within Europe on gene editing is like, well, if it's similar to conventional breeding, why can't we just do this with conventional breeding? Like, well, it would take, you know, 30 more years from now, yeah. Yeah, 10 to 15 years to achieve what we can do in, you know, four to five years, I mean, is going to be six years old this year. We've come such a long way in just six years. Wow. I mean, we wouldn't be able to achieve half of what we've done if all we were doing was traditional breeding methods. Um, you know, we're running out of time. And the realities of climate change are happening today. I mean, when you look at the extreme weather events, we have to start giving farmer solutions on, you know, it's not just about improving how we care for the planet. It's about giving solutions that are meeting the needs of the climate today. Because what grew well 
30, 40 years ago isn't going to grow well today because mm -hmm. the environment is completely different. And we can't just pretend that it's not and say, like, let's get rid of all this technology and go back to the way our grandparents did things. That's not an actual solution. So we need to, you know, be well informed and we need to, you know, value science and technology and respect what it can do and you know enable it to reach its full potential so that we can start putting real solutions in the hands of farmers i agree uh well this has been really great i do have very one last question um so i guess on that note what word of wisdom would you give someone in agriculture starting their career now or i guess just even an average consumer who's you know navigating products, what would be some word of wisdom uh, from your perspective that you'd like to impart with the audience? I would say, you know, be curious, you know, don't have an open mind and be curious, go in looking for information and trying to improve your understanding. And, you know, when I think about young professionals, um, you know, it, there's so much opportunity and so much to do. And, you know, I, I've really enjoyed throughout my career being able to work, especially with like interns coming, you know, straight out of college. And I always remind them like your, your job isn't to come here and be the best person in, in this, you know, organization. Your job is to learn as much as you can and to grow so focus on how, like how you can learn as much as you can and grow and you know deliver value through that um and from a consumer standpoint i think it's important because you know the world is changing so quickly when you know you think the rate of change with technology and like it can be intimidating and i'm i'm very sympathetic to that but be curious about why different solutions are being brought forward and what, you know, the benefits could be of them and what, what the risks could be and then make the decision that is, is best for you um, and your family. But, you know, don't let, don't let the fear of the unknown prevent you from, you know, prevent you from being open to solutions and, you know, and blocking those solutions from getting into the hands of others. I like that. Th thank you, Emily. I, this has been a really great chat. I've really enjoyed it. You've had some really great insights. I think one of my fa favorites was farmers, business partners, mother nature. I think that that might be the title. of the <laughs> so, No, but really, th thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Alicia. This podcast has been brought to you by Tridge, the leading global intelligence and networking platform for agriculture. Visit us at www.tridge.com to find out more.